0: Welcome uh, to BAMFA and the screening. Her post-screening conversation with Mildred Howard and Larry Rinder. Uh, I'm Lee Rayford. I um, also just want to thank Lauren Kreys and uh, Rebecca Ulrich one one more time. And, and a special thanks to Pam Uzel for this really lovely portrait of what's at stake for us um, in for those of us, especially who are South Berkeley residents, new old. Um, but also very much committed to the community. Thank you so much, Pam, for your film. You. So we're going to just have a, a, a short conversation and then we're going to open it up to audience questions and we'll um, conclude here at about 1.15. Um, but I also want to mention that when we conclude... Um, Please, if you can, uh, if you haven't already, take time to go downstairs to see About Things Loved and to see Mildred's Peace, Safe House, um, uh, you know, live <laughs> and in person. And also, um, our students who curated that show um, have put together a beautiful and free, <laughs> free catalog um, booklet about the show, about our process um as well, so, the, and those will be made available. Um, but I want to start, um, Mildred, by asking you, uh, to talk about Safe House. Um, and we, so, Safe House as the centerpiece, one of the centerpieces of About Things Loved, um, we chose it in part because it speaks to Questions of the kind of fragility of home, um, and the question you say in the film that um, the idea that you know home is never really settled um, in certain ways. And so, can you just talk to us a little bit about the work Safe House and what it means to you in this moment?
1: When I did Safe House, I did it based on a story because we home is supposed to be some place that is safe, where secrets are kept where you grow and you mature and all of those things. But I heard this story and, uh, about this young woman who was, there was an attempt at rape. And what saved her is that she pretended that she was, had passed out. And when she woke up, she got up and she threw a butcher knife and it stuck in the wall. But also uh, when uh, Fred Wilson was working on one of his pieces and he was, Fred Wilson is an artist, a MacArthur Fellow, if you're not familiar. His work is part of the UC Berkeley collection and he's ex, he's a, exhibited all over the world, including in the Venice Biennale. He discovered in his research that... Um, The same people who made all these silver objects that we leave in our cabinets and maybe we'll pull it out on Thanksgiving or a holiday. Those, they also made shackles. So, and why do we put such monetary value on these objects? Because they're just things. And that's one of the reasons why I covered that floor. So they go from tarnished to polished, to the knives in the wall and so at this point in my you know i i just i still question what is home because if we look at today and see what's happening throughout many urban environments the demographics have shifted and it's sort of like are we really going backwards again? And even though there are communities that are diverse, there is still segregated in terms of where people live.
2: So I know you've been working with the theme of the house or home for um, many years, since the 90s, I think. And I we put together some slides uh, of various of these, these works, just a few of them to give some examples of works related to Safe House. So I hoping that you can just talk a little bit about your uh, engagement with this theme, this image, and also maybe given the film that we've just seen, could you tell us if any of these works that you did on the, the, with the image of the house actually related to your experience in South Berkeley and the changes there?
1: Uh, all of them do, because at one point in my life, uh, I lived in one,
2: two, three, four,
1: five houses within a block and a half. Well, or maybe it was four, well, if five, five houses within four blocks, two blocks, because I moved, you know, next door, then across the street, then across the street, then next door. So while doing these houses, I was, you know, I, I, I really love to, like, uh, fantasize about what the what if, and the house, the red house that you're seeing, I think it's, what is it, 1922 or 24?
2: The 1924. Okay,
1: I lived at 1924 Fairview. I lived at 1922 Fairview. So I lived across the street. I lived on Dover, which is up the street. And all those houses, if I could build a house that expanded to meet my needs. So the red one was built so that you could slide it open and have space to work or have parties and things right. like so that. So it has moving parts in it. Yes. And this one's
2: in the collection of SF moments. Yes, is that it right? is. right?
1: All of them are in collection, except for maybe one.
2: How about Blue, Blue Bottle House?
1: Uh, those are both in, uh, the one on your left also expands, but those are all in private collection. The Blue Bottle House, which is, you're coming up to it, if you could. On, on, on the left, that belongs to someone in Atlanta.
2: But would you say that these three that we've looked at are, in a way, dream houses? I mean, you're fulfilling yeah. some fantasy of uh Yeah, well, a home. you know,
1: artists like to make up things. They make up stories. They have great imaginations. And all of these are about the what if, or what if I could change this to make it this way, and how what would that be?
2: And how about this, this last one here, the house that will not pass, pass for, for any, any
1: color than its own... Uh, long title. That was uh, commissioned by uh, the Sacramento Airport, and in fact, it'll be in Battery Park City next year for Juneteenth. And um, I worked with a fabricator in Germany, uh, Franz Meyer, to do the glass. Inside this structure, there are fragments of letters uh, that were done during the gold rush, and the fragments are mirrored so that if you're standing in the space because you can go into it, you're actually standing like in the present, but you're also see yourself in the reflection, which is a metaphor of what was and what is.
0: Actually, can we go back to the um, the bottles for a minute? The little ones, mm-hmm, or any of them? I just can you just I know that. Um, Also the piece, the house that's at the De Rosa is also um, made with bottles. Um, And if you could just talk a little bit about the significance of of bottle houses and and bottle trees.
1: I don't know if you're familiar with De Rosa Art Preserve. It's up in Napa. And I have, my very first bottle house was done there at the Headlands Center for the Arts. And um, I, I had read James Weldon Johnson's autobiography of an ex-colored man where he talked about going into the front yard and digging up the bottles, and he got in trouble for doing so. And what he didn't know that in the South, bottles were placed in your garden or in your trees to keep the bad spirits away. So the next morning, I had this great idea to do a house out of bottles. And for me, it was about um, the the bottle as a vessel for information, uh, the house as a container that holds information, all of those. But in addition to that, I was working at the Exploratorium, teaching the integration of art and science. So the physics of light going through, what happens when you place several different bottles together and project the light. What happens when you have multiple sources, like what's happening right here? What happens that? So all of that I was grappling with when I did that, please.
0: Beautiful. Um, I want to ask a question of Larry. Um, Given that um, uh, artists are often on the sort of front front lines of gentrification, of processes of gentrification, either moving into a neighborhood or being pushed out of a neighborhood. Um, and if you could talk, what are your thoughts on the role of the museum and particularly the Berkeley Art Museum um, in gentrification, either staving it off, <laughs> um, but what, what, is, what is our role here at the Berkeley Art Museum um, in terms of the kind of growing crisis around gentrification in Berkeley?
2: Well, one thing I, I, I will observe um, that I feel very blessed to be here in Berkeley, despite all the problems that this, this film has drawn our attention to, but blessed by the fact that the university is preserving, relatively speaking, compared to other communities in the Bay Area, a relatively more diverse population because of the student body, which, thank goodness, is diverse. And I hope that the university continues to attract and support a diverse student body. But that, I don't know what percentage of the population of Berkeley is, you know, UC Berkeley students is a third, a quarter, a third, something like that. Uh, And that continues to refresh year after year, whereas in other communities, that diversity is, you know, really being pushed out by the forces of gentrification. So um, I uh, am just grateful that um, that dimension of our audience uh you know is being preserved uh, as far as what we can do uh about gentrification i 'm not sure we can you know do much as a as an institution um, you know we certainly have an obligation and an opportunity to represent diversity in our programs and collections, but that 's a different issue related but different from gentrification per se and stopping it or, you know, I think that dealing with gentrification is, I mean, obviously, it's it's an economic problem. But the solution is political, uh, at least in in communities, a community can choose to pass laws that protect people with lower incomes, it can choose to pass laws that, you know, rent control and so on. Uh So, these tools are within our hands if we choose to use them, but we have to do that you know as a community democratically, and elect people who will do those things um, The museum can't you know take a position per se on something like that, obviously, but um that's my own personal view
0: I know one of the i mean certainly one of the challenges. Um, for us, be you know, sort of post, um, you know, Prop two hundred nine um, and the ending of affirmative action is that, for example, the the black community at UC Berkeley of students um, has pretty much held steady at three percent. Um, and I as I'm literally one of maybe twenty five black women faculty in a faculty body of fourteen hundred. Um, and so, sort of coupled with the you know the decreasing numbers, changing demographics, this is, and I think also we have to consider um, the rise in homelessness, right, um, in our ho- houseless population uh, in the area. And I think one of the things that's been great about um, the museum moving closer to downtown is that it it does give us an opportunity to think more creatively um, about how we welcome people into, into the museum. And I think that's been really exciting.
2: I think the university has to do a better job. And I think the university knows it has to do a better job of not only being a more welcoming place for students of color and faculty of color, but looking that way, you know, walking the walk and showing the walk. Uh, There's, there's ways that you can signal through the way you look, through the things that are in the environment, that this is a place of belonging for everybody. And, you know, one of the things that the university, I think, struggles with, and this museum does, and museums do kind of institutionally, is the, the, the baggage that we carry with us from the past that's embedded in our architecture, in our design, in the very words that, that we use to name our institutions that are, you know, fraught with exclusivity, and so it's not just about saying, oh, well, you know, now everything's different. Everyone's welcome. You really have to, in a way, dismantle stuff, right? And some of these signals about belonging and not belonging are in, built into architecture. How do you dismantle a building? I mean, it's difficult. So it's a step-by-step thing. But there are things that, that can be done in museums as houses of images and houses of representation have a powerful role to play in the world and in this university and can move faster than the campus, I think, in changing the tenor of the imagery that we present.
0: Which is why it's, I think it's so great that we have been able to kind of foster, the, at least for me, continue to foster this relationship with, with you, Mildred, um, as a longtime Berkeley resident. As part of the permanent collection here, um, you know, these conversations are increasingly important. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Um, Larry has, I know Larry has one more question. Yeah, I I do have
2: one more question. Um, Mildred, I'd like if you could please talk about the difference between art and activism for you.
1: Oh, God, that's a hard question. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, as an artist, I'm not, I mean, I'm multi dimensional as we all are. And I don't go out to say, Oh, I'm gonna make this to piece just to deal with this. Once in a while I will, but normally you have the same principles or in making art. I mean you still have to deal with the same basic principles of Line and form, and all those things that you, I mean, art is a discipline. You have to study. It's like everything else. You have to study it. And I've said it, it was, excuse me if you guys have heard this before, but back when they had typewriters, it's not like ASDFG space, semicolon LKJH. You know, once you know the keyboard, you know it. Art, you have to study on. And so, in terms of social activism, I think as a black woman in the United States of America, it is in my DNA. Because on this day, Juneteenth in 1865, two and a half years later, where the majority of my family, except for me, I was born in San Francisco, but my nine siblings were born in Galveston. My mother was born in the county right next to it, which was um, a slave port, because we only think about slave ports on the East Coast. But And so um, some general of the union wrote in with 2,000 of his troops to announce that it was Emancipation Proclamation. So I grew up on Juneteenth th- thinking that everybody had it, but they didn't. How many other Juneteenths are there? And I'm glad that now that this one is recognized everywhere because it's not just a black problem or African-American problem. It's a problem of the United States of America.
0: We have time for maybe three or so questions. Um, I want to start with, um, and there's a mic coming around. Um, Margie Wilkinson, who is part of uh, Friends of Adeline and was featured in Welcome to the
3: Neighborhood. Thank you. I, I don't. Okay, I don't actually have a question. I just want to say that Mildred Howard's being forced out of South Berkeley literally around the corner from where I currently live, was like um, the opening gambit of a war that is continuing to this day because it had to do with the fact that the city of Berkeley announced that it was going to revitalize the Adeline Corridor, and that revitalization has sped up the uh, displacement of African Americans in South Berkeley. Um, So, And Friends of Adeline is around. I want to introduce my colleagues. This is Mari Mendonca, who's also from Friends of Adeline, and Willie Phillips, who you saw in the movie. Um, And we're here. We'll be happy to talk to anyone who wants to talk to us after this is over. And I have a couple of pieces of information. Uh, Friends of Adeline is having a uh, forum this coming Sunday called Housing is a Human Right, and the subtext is race and housing. Um, And we invite you all to join us to talk about this very important issue. And I have copies of our... um, vision statement which you saw uh, willie refer to in the film anyway thank you mildred once thank again you, we appreciate you so much you. and no matter where you live or where you go you'll always be part of south berkeley as far as we're concerned thank, thank you. you
1: hi mildred Um, Two things. I have a question, but I just want to say in answer to your question about art and activism, I think that Mildred said, as a black woman in America, the actual act of making art is activism. It's revolutionary. And I think not just because of the subject matter that you use, it's just the fact that you take the time and the spirit and the sacrifice to make art is is her activism. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the um, influence of literature on your work Mildred. I noticed their words are sprinkled throughout your work and I wanted you to uh, say a few words about that. Well I, I I I grew up with tons of books around including the you know volumes and volumes of like old antique books that my mom collected and National Geographic. And um, my parents and my older siblings who were educated in the South had a great memory and they would recite poems by Paul Lawrence, Don Barr, Jacob Lawrence, uh, and passages from things so That was very much a part of me. And because words take me to other places, it sparks this other part of me that takes me on a journey. Sometimes I know where I'm going, but other times I just want to follow that path. And even though I may take a left turn or a right turn, it all comes back to those words.
4: Um you said somewhere in the in the film you want to make sure your mom was remembered uh, as somebody who moved from San Pablo and Oakland to San Pablo in Ashby in nineteen seventy and went to Longfellow School. I'm curious about what year that BART fight was. Um but we you know the elders of my neighborhood mentioned your mom's name to me. As the reason why Berkeley isn't cut off from the rest of the town, like we experienced over on Grant, over on Grove, now MOK for y'all when the BART came in. So, um, as a oral history, that knowledge is being passed along from folks who grew up in this area. Um, and so, I just wanted to, you know, this theme was so powerful, uh, and I'm trying to, it really pierced my heart. Um, there was something in that film, they said something about the culture that the black working class folks who generally came here from Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas built. It was so powerful and influential and has continued to be uh, the soil from which so much art, activism, and and political thought has come forth. Um, And I just wanted to thank you for the work you do and the impact it's had on me and I'll stop again and, and just kind of ask us a fact-based question, because I don't remember the fight underground It was the Berkeley. late 60s.
1: Yeah, It was okay. the late 60s when it began. Um, and I, in fact, D.Y. Lynn, who taught in the architecture department, whose firm now did the bridge, was a part of the, that team at that time. Because I remember going with my mother to meet with him, and then going up to his house. I think he lived in El Cerrito Hills or something like that. So that was the late 60s. And Atline Street was filled with black businesses, as was Sacramento Street. So those were, because there was a red line, you could not... So even though Berkeley, the population of African-Americans, Asian-Americans and Latinos were more than it is now, it was still segregated by race because it was a red line. Uh, I was teaching in the 50s and 60s in, in Berkeley. And where where were you teaching? I was a school librarian, actually. Oh. Which school? Uh, but uh, one of our main sayings was integrate in 68. And I just wondered if you had something to say about the... Uh, they were talking about integrate the schools. And I thought, I was wondering if you had something to say about that. I'd be really love to know. Well, I went to Malcolm X, which was then Lincoln. And it had one of the first African-American teachers, couple, or I guess the three that were in all the schools. Uh, Ruth Atkey, uh, uh, let's see, Louise Brown, and Carrington, I can't remember her name. She was Rumford, uh, Byron Rumford's sister-in-law. Oh, and, and oh, Mrs. Sloan. Um, yeah, so there were four, and those probably were all the ones that were in the whole school district at the time. But um, what was the question? Well, I, was, I mean, the, the students were segregated. The well, in, the inter- when, when they had uh, the, the desegregation of the public we school, people were bused in. But then you go back to your communities and the communities were segregated. When I went, to, went from, from uh, Malcolm X to Willard, it was like a whole other story. Yeah. And then you were tracked or you were not allowed to take certain classes. I mean, that actually happened because yeah. it happened to me. But fortunately, later in life, it may have been to my advantage. Because if you look at what's happened now, I mean, I always said, how come they get to take those classes and I can't? And then when I went on to college, I realized they're no smarter than I am. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I don't know what the problem was. But the problem was racism. Thank you. <laughs> when I think about it, it, it horrifies me. Yeah.
0: That's the memory. I think um, what... Jeff Chang said in the film is really pertinent that we live in a community that is rife with contradictions, that is sort of the best of what we what we hope for, and also living through and with the legacies um, of segregation, of institutionalized racism, etc. And um, it's my hope that we will that this con- Juneteenth today gives us an opportunity to to work harder for the best of our community. I want to thank Larry Rinder thank and you, Mildred Howard. Um, Mildred. And again, Pam Izell.
2: Thank you, everybody.
0: Thank
1: you, thank you Larry.